Yes or no to this statement, end-of-life care. We can't afford to keep it to everybody, so we're going to have to ration it. Is that right or is that wrong? Well, since probably all of us at some point want to have our crack at it when it's our turn, but probably all of us in the meantime, we're going to have to pay for it for everybody else. And since there really are two serious sides to this argument, then let's make a debate of it. I'm John Donvan, a debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, who will be arguing for and against this motion. Ration end-of-life care. On the side arguing for the motion, ration end-of-life care, Arthur Kellerman, the Paul O'Neill Alcoa Chair in Policy Analysis at the RAND Corporation. And Art, uh, you worked in and you taught emergency medicine for about a quarter of a century. I want to ask you, do you think the rest of us, uh, we civilians uh, in this world, really have any idea how often these end-of-life decisions come up in the ER? John, we save a lot more lives than we lose, but we deal with the issues we're going to debate tonight far more often than anyone realizes. Okay, and your partner, Peter Singer. Peter Singer, a professor of bioethics at Princeton, and you wrote in the New York Times a few years back that a system of rationing care should include measures of the quality of life, but not judgments about moral character or social value. Why not? Well, I think that's not the business of of physicians. Um, I think they can judge. There are ways of judging quality of life and life expectancy, but moral character is something different. It's, It's too subjective, I think. I wouldn't like to see it used as a criterion there. Our motion is this, ration end-of-life care, and here uh, to argue against the motion, first, Ken Connor. Kenyon, you are chairman of the Center for a Just Society, and you played a major role in perhaps uh, the most well-known case that centered on end-of-life issues, the Terry Schiavo case, in which the nation and a family was divided over the question of whether to remove a feeding tube from a young woman. The governor of Florida was empowered by a law called Terry's Law, to become involved in that. What was your involvement in that story? I represented the governor in defending Terry's law. And, and the fact that in the end your side lost? Terry's law was struck down by the Florida Supreme Court. Terry was ordered to die by starvation and dehydration. She did so over a 13-day period. If the court had ordered that of Ted Bundy, it would have been deemed to be cruel and unusual punishment because that's precisely what it was. And your partner, Sally Pipes, ladies and gentlemen. You are also, Sally, arguing against rationing end-of-life care. Now, you wrote a book called The The Top Ten Myths of American Health Care. But what do you think is the number one myth about end-of-life care? Well, I think that one should not have to die earlier than one might um, in order to benefit society and reduce costs. People should have the right to die and to live as long as they can. All right. Now, in this debate, you, our live audience here in Chicago, act as our judges. By the time the debate has ended, you will have been asked to vote two times, once before the debate and once again after the debate, on where you stand on this motion. And the team who has moved the most of you to their side by the end of the evening and as a percentage term will be declared our winner. Our motion is ration end of life care. And on to round one, opening statements by each debater in turn. And speaking first for the motion, Arthur Kellerman, the Paul O'Neill Alcoa Chair in Policy Analysis at the RAND Corporation. Prior to this, he was a professor of emergency medicine. Ladies and gentlemen, Arthur Kellerman. Since 2010, I've worked for the RAND Corporation. RAND is an independent, 
nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization that's dedicated to objective analysis of some of the toughest policy questions confronting our country and the world. RAND analysts are expected to be dispassionate and detached. That's not a good way to win an Intelligence Squared debate. (laughs) And I'm here tonight not as a RAND analyst, but as an ER doc. The goal of emergency medicine is always to save lives. But you would be surprised how often we have to make decisions in consultation with patients or their families about whether or not initiating heroic measures is, in fact, the right thing to do and what the patient really wants. Now, from a medical or a business perspective, the easiest thing to do by far is just full-court press. Start resuscitation, intubate the patient, roll out the breathing machine, put in IV lines. But, you know, it doesn't always accomplish what we want. And rather than prolonging life, it simply prolongs the process of dying. Now, to clarify what we're debating tonight, I think it's important for us to define just what we mean. What kind of of end-of-life care are we talking about? Medical and surgical treatments that do not achieve a reasonable goal of medicine should not be used. Limiting this type of care is not rationing. It's good medicine. Now, some treatments are desired, but they're extremely costly and have a very low chance of success. But finally, there is one type of of end-of-life care that is not used often enough. It's relatively inexpensive, it's highly valued by patients, and it's effective. Palliative care. Palliative care is specialized care that's focused on relieving pain, relieving the burden of symptoms, helping a patient to be as comfortable and as functional as they can be as they approach the last days of their lives. Now, two years ago, a group of cancer specialists published an amazing study in the New England Journal of Medicine. They took a group of patients with a very serious type of lung cancer, and they randomly assigned it to two treatment groups. One treatment group got palliative care and standard cancer treatment. The other group got very aggressive, advanced cancer care, and they followed the two groups. The palliative care group not only had a better quality of life and less depression, prior to their death, they lived longer. So at the outset of this debate, let's assume that our opponents did not come here to defend bad medicine. And you can be confident that Professor Singer and I did not come here to advocate limiting access to palliative care. So that leaves us with a pretty narrow set of situations and a highly charged question. Do patients in the last stages of terminal illness have an unqualified right to extremely costly treatments of uncertain value for as long as they want? Because if the answer is yes, the rest of us have to be prepared to pay the price. Most of us don't want to die in an intensive care unit strapped to a bed under fluorescent lights, separated from our loved ones. Yet that's precisely what happens to many of us because all too often our healthcare system is too focused on making money too preoccupied with its technical prowess, and too busy to sit down with a patient and have an honest, thoughtful, candid conversation about prognosis and the patient's wishes at the end of life. That's why at the end of this evening, I urge you to vote for the proposition. Thank you. Thank you, Arthur Kellerman. Our motion is ration end-of-life care, and our... 
First next speaker will be speaking against the motion, Sally Pipes. She is president and chief executive officer of the Pacific Research Institute. She also uh, writes a weekly health column for Forbes.com and is the author of The Pipes Plan, The Top Ten Ways to Dismantle and Replace Obamacare. Ladies and gentlemen, Sally Pipes. I'm against the proposition that we should end, we should ration end-of-life care. My mother was Canadian and a senior. In July of 05, she felt she had colon cancer. Her primary care doctor said she did not because he did an x-ray and no cancer showed up. Well, we all know that colon cancer is not detected by an x-ray but by a colonoscopy. But she could not get one in Canada because of her age and the fact that a waiting list for people under 65 with colon cancer symptoms was over six months. So by late November, my mother was hemorrhaging and had lost 35 pounds. Then she did get her colonoscopy. But sadly, she passed away two weeks later from metastasized colon cancer. This is the outcome when government bureaucrats set the rules for who is going to get care and when. Rationing care at the end of life may be a sound solution in the abstract, but when it comes to your mother, your father, or your child who has a terminal illness, it is wrong for social engineers and government bureaucrats to make these life decisions for you. In Canada, where I grew up, the government spends 11.4% of gross domestic product on health care, and private health insurance is outlawed. The government sets a global budget, the one the government can afford. The demand for health care is much greater than the supply. 17% of Canadians are waiting to get a primary care doctor. In 2011, 940,000 Canadians were on a waiting list waiting for treatment. In the case of my own mother, it may have shortened her life, but it was definitely cheaper for the government. But colon cancer is one of the most common diseases among our seniors. A study published in the British journal Lancet Oncology suggests that America is one of the best countries for um, treating cancer and survival rates five years after diagnosis for 13 of the 16 most common cancers. For example, breast cancer survival rates among, among American women is 83.5%, whereas in Britain, it's only 70%. Prostate cancer, survival rate 92% in the U.S., only 51% in Britain. So how will the Affordable Care Act ration care for our seniors, and in particular, those in need of health care? In three ways, the Independent Payment Advisory Board, Accountable Care Organizations, and the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. It is similar to NICE in the UK, a government agency that determines which treatments are cost-effective as compared to medically effective. While no one can deny that there are problems in American health care, a system that empowers doctors and patients will solve them, not the federal government. I do think that everyone here would agree we all want affordable, accessible, quality care. How do we achieve that goal? Well, I believe There are two competing visions when it comes to health care reform and achieving universal coverage. One focuses on doctors and patient-centered solutions. The other focuses on increasing the role of government in our health care system. That was President Obama's vision. And while it is true that 5% 
or 2.5 million seniors in their last year of life consume 25% of Medicare spending, it is still my belief it is not the government's place to limit costs by sacrificing lives. In my view, people have every right to live as long as they can. Therefore, I urge you to vote against the proposition. Thank you. Thank you, Sally Pipes. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. from Chicago Ideas Week. The motion is ration end-of-life care. Stay with us. And uh, a reminder of where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion, ration end of life care. You have heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third. Debating for the motion, ration end of life care, the Ira W. DeCamp Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University. He's been called the most influential living philosopher by The New Yorker and is the author of a number of books, including (coughs) The Life You Can Save and Animal Liberation. Ladies and gentlemen, Peter Singer. Thank you very much. It's the position of our side that we are already rationing health care. So in a sense, we cannot really debate whether we should do so. The question that we can discuss is whether we should be open and explicit about what we're doing and therefore try to do it in the best, most thought-out way possible. It's clear that we are not spending our health dollars effectively in this country at present. We spend about between 17 to 18% of uh, everything we have, every, of our gross national product, on, on health care. That's about 50% more than other comparable countries, the other industrialised countries that uh, we compare ourselves with. There is no evidence that we get any better outcomes for the extra 50% that we're spending. When we look not just at... Uh, what the health system does, but at health outcomes in America, we're actually terrible. We rank, in terms of health outcomes, somewhere around the level of countries like Slovenia and Costa Rica. And the other industrialised nations have better health outcomes, including, incidentally, Canada. I think that there's a general feeling that this healthcare system is not delivering what we want. But as I said, it is rationing. It rations in many ways. For example, we have about 44 million people, Americans now, who are not insured at all. Now, not being insured means that you are more likely to die if you have a serious illness or accident. In fact, uh, Joseph Doyle, a uh, MIT scientist, looked at people who were brought into emergency care as a result of uh, road accidents, uh, seriously injured, and found that those who were uninsured died at a higher rate, even when adjusting for other variables, than those who had insurance. And when he calculated how much it would have cost to save these people's lives, it would have been about $280,000. But given that these are mostly fairly young people, in terms of how, many, how much it would have cost to extend their life for one year, it would be about $5,500. 
Compare that with the amount that those much-criticised bodies, uh, Sally Pipes mentioned NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence in the United Kingdom, what they say is too much to spend. Currently, NICE's figure is around $49,000. In other words, almost 10 times, nine times as much as would have saved the lives of these young accident victims. So we are losing lives, and we are losing lives that we could save quite cheaply. Something has to be done because healthcare costs are rising here much faster than the economy is growing. They're rising at 9.8% per annum. So if that keeps happening, what's going to happen? It will eventually soak up all available spending. But we know that government has to spend on other things. We cannot increase healthcare spending uh, indefinitely and also spend more on the elderly and spend more on the environment, on education, on all of the other important things that we need. So, yes, for this motion, we should be rationing health care. Thank you, Peter Singer. Our motion is ration end-of-life care, and our final debater will be speaking against this motion. That's Ken Connor. Ken is chairman and founder of, a center, of the Center for a Just Society. He is a successful trial lawyer. He represented Governor Jeb Bush in the long-running Terry Schiavo case and for several years served as president of the Family Research Council. Ladies and gentlemen, Ken Connor. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to make three points, if I may, about why government should not be in the business of rationing health care. First of all, that healthcare decisions should be made at the end of life, just as at any other point in life, at the bedside by the people involved and who are affected, not by bureaucrats at a remote location. Secondly, that rationing is unethical because it ultimately devalues human life and inevitably winds up punishing the sick and the dying. Thirdly, that rationing is the lazy man's way of uh, lazy man's attempt to balance the budget. It's easier to balance the budget on the backs of the sick and dying than it is to reform your ways of wasteful spending in government and try to wrench money back from the hands of the special interests at home and abroad. So back to the premises, first of all, that decisions about health care and how it ought to be administered and when it ought to be administered ought to be decisions that are made by the patients, informed by their doctors and by their families. A bureaucrat, remote from the bedside, hundreds, perhaps thousands of miles away, practicing assembly line medicine, simply is not in a position to make those kinds of individualized decisions that are required. These are decisions that have to be made real time. Now, no one is suggesting that we should not be good stewards of scarce health care resources. We absolutely should be. But rationing is not what we need. It's rational care. Now, folks, make no mistake about it. Government rationing represents the first step down the road to the utilitarian philosophy of former Colorado Governor Richard Lamb, who said, the elderly have a duty to die and get out of the way. This philosophy sees the elderly and the handicapped as resource hogs whose useful life is over and who now cost more to maintain than they produce. They reject the sanctity of life ethic that has long prevailed in this country and that maintains that every human life is precious and ought to be respected and protected under the law. 
Instead, the quality of life advocates maintain that we should use quality of life calculus and functional capacity studies in deciding who lives and who dies. Of course, the elderly and the handicapped who suffer from dementia and disability don't score well using their formulas. Ladies and gentlemen, what criteria will the all-wise bureaucrats use to pick winners and losers at the end of life? Will they be any more successful than they were in picking Solyndra and Bright Source and Abound Solar on whom the government squandered billions of dollars? Folks, I would suggest to you that there are many places that we can look to find the savings that we need. For heaven's sakes, we spent $4 trillion on the Wall Street bailout to rescue businesses that engaged in profligate spending practices. Surely we can spend the money required to render appropriate health care to the sick and the dying. Ladies and gentlemen, I urge you to vote against the proposition because by the time you reach the end of your life, you'll be glad you did. Thank you. Thank you, Ken Connor. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now we move on to round two. And round two is where the debaters address each other directly and also answer questions from me and from you in the audience. We have two teams of two. Arthur Kellerman and Peter Singer are arguing for the motion, ration end-of-life care. And we have heard them say, basically, that we already are rationing, that health care is rationed right now by the ability to pay for it by the individual, and that it is time to be explicit, to ration in a different way, to step up and admit that's what we're doing and figure out a system for doing it. Uh, uh, The team arguing against the motion, Sally Pipes and Ken Connor, argue that rationing end-of-life care is the wrong way to balance the budget. They say that it would be falling to government bureaucrats to make intensely personal decisions, that cost should not be the driver of a decision regarding the end-of-life, and that they depict a future where basically the elderly will be thrown overboard. Now, I, I noticed that the two sides do agree that cost-cutting needs to happen. They do agree that ideally these decisions will be made at the bedside by doctors and their families. The question is, who ends up controlling where the money comes from? And I want to put to the side arguing in support of rationing end-of-life care, and particularly to Peter Singer, is there a way actually to arrive at a dollar value for what a few more months of life would be worth to an elderly person versus what it would be worth to a younger person? Can you put a dollar number on these things? It's very difficult to agree on dollar numbers. I mean, health care economists try to do it, um, because really what they're doing is they're comparing what you get for your money if you spend it on one thing, um, let's say saving young people's lives, and what you get for your dollar if you spend it on something else, perhaps Avastin, say, for cancer, where it can only extend life by uh, two or three months at significant expense. And I think what they can clearly say is we get better value in some cases rather than others. We extend life for longer for the same amount or we extend life for an equal amount for less money. And, and you, you said in your opening remarks that younger lives are less expensive, generally speaking, to save than older lives. Does that, am, I, am I reading you correctly? Well, I think most of us would agree that it's a greater tragedy if a 20-year-old dies um, because they were in an accident and didn't have health insurance than if an 85-year-old dies. It's worth spending more to prevent if we can save the life of somebody who still has most of their life in front of them and still has a lot of things that they can achieve. All right, so I, but I'd like you to respond to that in light of your saying in your opening remarks that each of us has the right to live as long as we can. Does age come into it? 
No, I believe we all have the right to live as long as we can. Only when someone has died can we actually measure the cost. The cost of keeping that person alive is we should give people the best opportunity to get the best care that they can regardless of their age. I mean, if you take an issue like infant mortality, people at WHO and the Commonwealth Fund will say, well, infant mortality is much higher in the U.S. than it is in in countries in Europe. But you have to compare apples with apples. We have the best neonatal care. Children live survive a lot more in this country because they have this good neonatal care. In countries in Europe, they determine that if a fetus or a newborn is under a certain uh, weight and a certain length, they're not counted as a live birth. So I think we don't want to put dollars and cents on this. We want to give everyone the best possible care, and how we get there is what we can talk about a bit later. All right, and Ken Connor, your partner. John, I'd like to weigh in against that kind of uh, calculus. And I would suggest to you that any point of view that says that uh, a person's uh, dignity diminishes with age or that somehow their personhood erodes as they get older is a point of view, really, that is a bankrupt point of view. And inevitably, that point of view will endanger everyone who reaches old age or anyone who should suffer from the slings and arrows of misfortune and wind up suffering a serious illness or injury. Art Kellerman, because I'm, I'm not hearing you actually, I'm not hearing them make the argument in that extreme I, way, but I want to I see what Art I, does I say. I just got to get a couple of things sorted out here. I'm, I'm easily confused. First of all, I want to make sure I came to the right debate tonight. Because I came here to debate whether, how we approach end-of-life care. I just want to make sure I'm at the right debate because I'm not here to debate Solyndra, Wall Street, Obamacare, or the presidential election. But I'm Southern and we're easily confused. So second question is, are we here to debate an elderly person's right to super expensive care paid for by the government versus simply very expensive care that we all agree is probably a reasonable deal? Or are we here to debate whether or not poor people and other folks can get decent care versus no care. Because I personally believe in the sanctity of life, but I think the sanctity of life extends beyond birth and goes all the way up and doesn't sort of kick in again the last few weeks before death. Well, that's precisely it my... throughout life for the uninsured, the poor, and working-class folks, too. And they should be part of the discussion. Well, that's precisely, that's precisely my point. And the point is we're going to use some kind of criteria to decide who lives and who dies. And, for instance, if the eminent Dr. Singer were to become the rationer-in-chief in the next administration, what criteria would he use? Would we look at the elderly, the demented, the disabled, and say that their quality of life years don't merit preserving their lives? Ideas have consequences. Let's take one, the specific part of your question that relates most closely to this motion to, to Peter. Do you have a system, or do you have the, the outlines of a system? Do you have a philosophy about how this should be approached? So I think actually, the, although it's much criticized, I think that the UK model of setting up, they have a National Institute for, for Clinical Excellence. Uh, Sally referred to it by its acronym, NICE. Not everybody thinks it's NICE. But um, what they do is they try to cost the various treatments that are out there, and they try to get expert data on how long uh, those treatments extend life in a variety of different conditions. And they make recommendations. They're not binding, but they make recommendations to the local area health authorities throughout the United Kingdom to suggest that this treatment does give good value for money. You should be providing it. Uh, But perhaps this treatment for this specific condition 
is above the bar that we think reasonable, and you may consider not providing that. Sally Pipes. Right, so um, you are a proponent of NICE, which I think the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute is, is patterned after. But if you read the British press about the quality-adjusted value of life, if you're, say, 68 years old, and the, the actuaries within the National Health Service bureaucracy say your, your life is worth $49,000. You may be, uh, have been diagnosed with a, a severe cancer, um, macular degeneration, but if the drugs to take care of this are costing more than $49,000, you are denied care in the United Kingdom. Read the British press. People are complaining all the time. Even ex-employees at the National Health Service will say it's wrong that we cannot get the care we need because it may be medically effective, but it's not cost-effective. Sally, um, one question I have for you when you were describing what the British are doing and saying no to certain procedures that are not considered cost-effective or or not effective enough to justify the cost. Don't insurance companies do that all the time? Well... Yes, insurance companies make decisions based on actuarial evidence. Would you prefer the government to be making decisions about what drugs and treatments you can, or would you prefer the private sector and insurance companies to make those decisions? I personally want insurance companies. I prefer the insurance companies. Let's, let's show some respect to this. Can you, why would you prefer the private sector to do it to the government? Because the private sector provides all things that we we can make decisions about what kind of cell phones we want, what kind of bank accounts we want. The problem in this country is that 50% of our health care today is already in the hands of government through Medicare, Medicaid, and the VA system. We don't have a private market. I want to see the tax code change so that we can move to a more individualized basis on health insurance, just like our car insurance, our life insurance, our long-term care insurance. This is the way America works. It's what makes America great. Let me ask your um, partner, uh, Ken Connor, this point. I mean, we do have smaller versions of single-payer assistance. We have Medicare. We have the Veterans Administration. They have to make decisions. They have to cut costs. Do they need to have a system of rationing? Well, I think, I think it's important to understand as a practical matter. Uh, he who pays the piper gets to call the tune. And so as a practical matter, whoever's making those payments in large measure is going to call the shots. What we advocate, though, in contrast to a central bureaucratized, central planning decision-making process, is that we have consumer-driven decision-making. There's an economic concept that our physician friend may not be aware of. It's called opportunity cost. And your proposition assumes the fallacy of only two alternatives. Either we recoup the money from the sick and dying or we don't. Arthur Kellerman. I think there's a big difference between deciding what we as a society can afford to commit folks to get, whether it's in an ICU at the end of the life or whether it's at 25 years old when you're trying to get your first job and starting a family. And let's commit to that level of financial protection and coverage that we all kind of want to buy into. If beyond that, whatever that is, whatever we as a country decide we are prepared to shoulder, you can buy it. If you want a Vastin and it's worth $100,000 a year to pay for it out of your pocket and you want to use your children's inheritance, go for it. It's okay with me, but I've got a problem with you using our inheritance to buy your Avastin if we don't have the evidence that it makes a difference. I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. from Chicago Ideas Week. The motion is ration end-of-life care. Stay with us.
I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. The motion is ration end-of-life care. Uh, I, I want to shape this back to what we're talking about as a trade-off of what you get for what you pay, and are you willing to pay it, and is it wrong to deny that payment? And right now we are in a world where uh, Medicare is taking care of an awful lot of people, and it's very expensive. We know a crisis is coming. Given where we are on that, their argument that at some point you have to say no, and let's make it fair for everybody, which is the principle of rationing. When there's not enough of something to go around, you set up a system so that everybody gets an equal shot at it. Just that concept. What do you think of, you know, what, what is wrong with that? Because I know you think that it's wrong. Right. Well, well, I think you're talking about fundamental fairness here. Uh, and let, let's think of it in these terms. How fair is it when you pay into something all your life, and you get to the end of your life when you really need it, and you've been told that you're paying in to receive health care, and you get down to the point when you really need it and say, and the government says, sorry, you're going to cost us too much. Isn't there a fundamental fairness issue in that regard? Okay, and the question I want to put to this side out of this is that he's actually portraying what sounds like a very ugly situation. You're old. You're, you've got two years left. We've got a limited amount of money. That group of kids over there, they've got all their lives in front of you. Sorry, Charlie, you're off the boat. A, a, a cynical colleague of mine once said, Americans don't mind throwing people overboard. They just don't like to hear the splash. And there are an awful lot of people that are getting thrown overboard every day in this country that we're not debating about tonight. All right, but, that's, but that is no, not no, the it, debate it's, tonight. It's really important. Sally told a story. I'll just briefly tell a story. Early in my career, I saw a woman in her 30s, a mother of three, who rolled in the door with a hemorrhagic stroke. Her blood vessel burst in her brain. She was neurologically devastated. We intubated her. We did everything that Sally and Kib would want. We gave her a full court, all out, best we could humanly do, and we could not save her life. I went to break the news to her sisters, and they told me that three weeks earlier she'd lost her job, lost her coverage, could not afford her three blood pressure medicines, and was forced to choose between groceries for her kids or medicine for herself. Her life had value. She died. We spent more money in the last three hours of a completely futile effort to save her life than could have kept her in blood pressure medicine her whole life, raised her kids, paid her taxes, contributed to our country. Those people matter too. Uh, Michael, come to you and you can stand up if you wouldn't mind telling us your name. Hi, my name is Tom Oseal. Uh, great job, everybody. It was very entertaining. Um, thinking in two hypotheticals. One, we're thinking... 60 years down the road, and the other being that the stereotype that Gen Y all think they're special is true. Would, which scenario do you think would be more likely? A, as a result of our lives being so special that the pool of end-of-life candidates would become so extreme that we'd have no choice but to make reforms and have this discussion in ration life care? Or B, as a result of having such a comfortable life, would the effects of the suffering that goes on during end of life become so extreme where the conversation actually switches to do people have the capacity for, to choose euthanasia, for example? Let's uh, take Ken Connor first on that. Historically, in America, we have, we have maintained that human, you know, it's a self-evident truth that human beings are endowed by their creators with certain unalienable rights, the first of which is the right to life. Now, uh, I fear that rationing opens the door to euthanasia. 
because decisions are made on a utilitarian basis about who lives and who dies. And that's the reason I injected the issue uh, on the front end of this debate about personhood, because Dr. Singer has maintained that if you lack certain qualities, rationality, uh, the capacity to reflect on your own existence, uh, self-awareness, you're not a person. Peter Singer. If I can comment on that, I I think what we are increasingly finding, and we will in the future if you're looking to the future, is that more people want to have the right to make their own decisions about when they die, about when they've had enough. At, at, At the moment, people generally can say, I don't want any more treatment. But if there isn't treatment that's keeping them alive, they don't have that choice. So I think that um, that is actually something that probably is increasingly going to happen as uh, people start to see that this is something that they want for themselves. But that's a matter of choice. That's not a matter of rationing. But don't you think, Peter, that these decisions should be made between doctors and families and and the patient in conjunction? And living wills is an an area that is expanding because you can say so that when you're very ill, it's not as if you're under anesthetic or under, under drugs. You've actually made a decision. I know it's hard to figure out when that time will be, but I think living wills are a great way to put things down. But I think doctors and families and the, and the person who is ill should be making these decisions. Um, ma'am, sorry, I didn't see you. My name is Julie Goldstein. I'm a palliative care physician and educator. And my question is, do you think that if we were to address the waste head-on by education, et cetera, that we might save enough money that we wouldn't even need to feel, we wouldn't have the need to ration? I'm glad you brought that up. I, I really believe that if we focused on getting rid of bad medicine and reinforced and sustained palliative care, that takes care of 90% of this issue. There may well be a point as a society where we have to say that above a certain amount of dollar value, you can pay for it yourself, but Medicare or private insurance or whatever won't go past that point. But I'm never going to get between an American and their wallet. Okay, Ken Connor. Well, listen, I I affirm, doctor, uh, uh, the premises of your question, which is if we can eliminate the waste, fraud, and the abuse, doesn't that obviate the need for rationing? The question is whether or not we're going to waste uh, enough, uh, continue to waste money and, and then promote the need for rationing because of it. Now, the Institute of Medicine reports, for instance, that, that we spend $75 billions of dollars a year because of health care fraud, $190 billion in excess administrative costs. And so I'm saying let's not take the path of least resistance. Let's do what we need to do to reform wasteful spending and not, not force ourselves into a position where we think we have to ration health care at the expense of the elderly. All right. uh, I, I don't, I'm not feeling that there's a need for a response from your side on this because the question was more to this side, so I'm going to go on to another question. Sir. I want to put out a, a hypothetical scenario. You have three gentlemen, 72 years old. One is unemployed, always been on government care. One of them is a... Uh, let's say somebody who's in jail, and then a third person is somebody who has actually been in the system, paying taxes, everything else. They get in a car accident, same thing happens. Do all three deserve from government care the same result? Well, uh, in America, we've historically said that we're entitled to equal protection under the law. And so the government arguably has an obligation to treat everyone the same. 
Now, in the marketplace, uh, it doesn't always work that way. We talk about equal opportunity, not equal outcomes. And so in that, that's what I like about the marketplace is that decisions can be made in the marketplace. Look, the, the notion that government is uh, more qualified to make decisions and to allocate resources than markets, I think, is a, a foolish notion. But in the final analysis, I think we, we, we need to understand that the Constitution is a hedge against government. It's not a hedge against individuals. It's not a hedge against markets. But the Constitution limits the powers of government. So if government is going to assume certain responsibilities, it's bound by the chains of the Constitution, and I think we want it that way. But I think Sally Pipes said in her opening statements, each of us should have the right to live as long as we can. Right. And if you're, but, the, these people are 72, you said, or 71. They're, on, they're obviously on Medicare because they're, they're seniors. When, I'd, I'd like to ask Art, when someone co- turns up at an emergency room, they're on Medicare, do you ask, are, they, are you an pr- ex-prisoner or are you unemployed? I think that, that there's a responsibility in the emergency room to treat these people. And I know, most doctors I know who are ER doctors have no idea whether the person is wealthy or poor or whatever. So I think under Medicare, they should, they should be treated by Art or whomever. I want to take your question as an opportunity to, to bring up another key point, which we spent a lot of time tonight talking about economics, and we spent a little time talking about the uninsured and the underinsured. But there's another group that really suffers under the current system, and those are the folks who are lining the hallways and in trauma bays and ERs waiting for the ICU bed that they can't get into. We are not a country of unlimited money or of unlimited critical care capacity. And so my perspective, and I think my colleague's perspective is, given that we live in a finite world, we want to do the most good for the most people possible, and that should be our fundamental mission. And the fact that somebody got there first shouldn't be ultimately the prevailing decision. We've got to maximize the benefit and the value and the so good what, to society what, that we can do. What's the system then, Art? Then what's the system then? The system is, again, you, you have to make decisions. You work with families. You have to figure out where no, if, can but, you give but people but if it's, the best does, does Medicare get to set up a panel to say we're going to provide this particular procedure or not because it's, it, evidence-based medicine suggests it's not cost-effective? Does Medicare get to say we're not going to do that? I think Medicare gets to say we're not going to pay for it. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. I think if you say you're not going to pay for it, people are going to go, huh, never mind. Okay. I mean, that we know that. The RAND, RAND has done work for 40 years that show that if people have to put their money on the table, they tend to make more careful decisions. I have to stop because this concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. <laughs> on to round three, closing statements. Our motion is this, ration end-of-life care. And here to summarize her position against this motion, Sally Pipes, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Pacific Research Institute. There are 50 million seniors in this country today on Medicare, and that number is going to expand exponentially as the baby boomers retire, and I am one of the baby boomers. Doctors are already feeling the financial squeeze. They're reimbursed by government at a rate 20% below what they get for treating private patients. It is no wonder that 52% of doctors surveyed say they're limiting the access of Medicare patients to their practices. Unless reformed, this could result actually in bureaucrats setting an age limit for one's life. 
Don Berwick, has, when he was administrator at CMNS, said, it's not a question of whether we'll ration care or not. Will we ration it with our eyes open? We do not want a nice system in this country. It's not the American way, where a government body determines what is uh, cost-effective rather than medically effective. America needs a health care system where doctors and patients make decisions about the best kind of care needed when their loved ones approach the end of their lives. Morally and ethically, this is the only way to proceed. I urge you to vote against rationing the end-of-life care. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Sally Pipes. Our motion is ration end-of-life care, and here to summarize his position in support of the motion, Peter Singer. He is professor of bioethics in the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. We've actually reached a surprising amount of agreement in this debate because all sides agree that rationing occurs. Sally said there's always going to be rationing. Ken said we are all in agreement that rationing occurs. The question is, who should ration? He says he favours rationing through markets rather than government. But you should read that article that he wrote about the problems of the elderly because here's a quote from that article. For-profit nursing homes have on average 32% fewer nurses and 47% higher deficiencies than their non-profit counterparts. This increased emphasis on profits has led to a distressing rise in neglected and abused seniors. So I have to ask... Why does Ken have such confidence in the markets solving the problems of the allocation of medical resources when he is rightly, I believe, critical of what for-profit nursing homes do to abused seniors? We think that there has to be a better way than allowing profit maximisation to determine how we allocate those health dollars. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our motion is ration end-of-life care, and here to summarize his position against the motion, Ken Connor. He is founder and chairman of the Center for a Just Society. One of our founding fathers said, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. Men are not angels, and we do. Markets are not perfect, and they do need regulation. The question is, where do we wind up striking the balance? But let me say this. I, I, I think it's important to understand that Rationing is not required in order for the health care system to remain solvent. That assumes the fallacy of only one alternative, that either we ration or we're going to go broke. That's not true. And that's why I brought up the point earlier in the debate, which Dr. Kellerman didn't seem to understand, that there are lots of places from which we can effect savings. But it's work to effect these savings. It's hard work to wrest resources from the hands of the special interests. We should not ration. We should not balance the budgets on the back of the sick and the dying. We can provide good health care for all people through and including the end of life. What we need is a rational approach to end-of-life health care, not the rationing of end-of-life health care. Thank you. Thank you, Ken Thank you. Our motion is ration end-of-life care. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion, Arthur Kellerman. He is the Paul O'Neill Alcoa Chair in Policy Analysis at the Rand Corporation. Most Western democracies have health care systems that provide you with all the care you need, whether or not you can afford it. 
Our healthcare system has evolved to provide you with all the healthcare you can afford, whether or not you need it. Modern American medicine is a $2.8 trillion a year industry, and it is rapidly outgrowing our economy's capacity to support it. More high-tech care is not necessarily better care. Sometimes the basics, pain control, bedside attention, love, matter a lot more than the most sophisticated $100,000 medicines there are. Let me tell you what happened one night as an example. I brought a daughter who had cared for her mother for 10 years to the bedside. And I said, your mom has a severe pneumonia. She's septic. This is the third time she's been in the hospital in the last two months. We can do everything we know to do, and she will almost certainly die, but she might pull through. And the best we can hope for is she'll be the way she was a week ago when she didn't recognize you and was in the nursing home. So my question to you is not, what do you want us to do? I know what you want us to do. You want us to make your mother the way she used to be. I can't do that. So I want to ask you, what would your mother want if she came back now and stood next to you and she said, Mama would say it's time. As you vote tonight, I ask you to consider what kind of doctor do you want to take care of your mother and what kind of doctor will you want to take care of you? And that should guide your vote. Thank you, Art Kellerman. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it is time to find out which side you feel argued best. Our motion is ration end-of-life care. We now have the results in on your vote. Remember, we had you vote before you heard the arguments and once again after hearing the arguments. And the team who has changed your number the most by the largest percentage will be declared our winner. So here is how it breaks out. Before the debate, 43% were for the motion, 22% against, and 35% undecided. After the debate, 81% are for the motion. That's up 38%. 12% are against. That's down 10%. 7% are undecided. The side arguing for the motion carries the debate. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan in Chicago and Intelligence Squared U.S. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held at the Goodman Theater during Chicago Ideas Week. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. Chris Kamakawa is researcher. And I'm your host, John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. To hear the full unedited version or to sign up for the Intelligence Squared podcast, visit npr.org forward slash Intelligence Squared. Intelligence Squared U.S. is supported by the Rosencrantz Foundation and distributed by NPR. NPR.